0: Sociopolitical issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham,
1: Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Welcome, everybody, to episode 91 of You Don't Have to Yell. It is your bod boy of nonpartisan political podcasting here. And before We get to the meat of this episode. I have some very exciting news to share. Podcast ranking service, Chartable, has ranked, you don't have to yell, as the 5,780 second most popular podcast in existence. It's a wonderful milestone, but we don't settle for second best here on YDHTY, or for that matter, 5,780 second best. So... To help commemorate the occasion, I want us to get down not to 5,781, not to 5,780, but to 5,775 by the end of May. I think we can do it, folks. So to help, share YDHGY with all your friends and neighbors and even your enemies. Anyone you feel would be interested in forming a more perfect union in this United States of America. Now, with that out of the way, The 117th Congress, that would be the one we have now, for those of you who lost count, boasts the largest percentage of women in history. This being said, we shouldn't even buy a bottle of champagne, much less pop the cork, as that record number is 27%. Now... To help explain this imbalance, I invited Jennifer Lawless, professor of politics at the University of Virginia, who has done extensive research on the subject. She offers some really interesting insight into why it is that we don't see more women in office, and a lot of it begins well before the ballot box. She also had to explain it to me several times, as it was not my best thinking day. One last note. In line with how dense I was on that day, apparently I had the wrong mic on during the recording and it sounds like I'm talking on speakerphone. So please forgive me. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. Before we get started, a couple disclaimers.
2: Number one, uh, my kids are home and have decided to start wrestling right outside my office. So you can, you may and probably will hear the sound of screaming per usual, like every other episode, Screaming is a sign things are normal in this house. Silence is the thing I have to get up and investigate. Um, Number two, you may be noticing, uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, that um, I'm currently wearing these glasses that make me look like a shopping mall Santa Claus. Uh, I lost my uh, glasses uh, visiting the wizarding world of Harry Potter in Orlando this week. uh, And, uh, (laughs) and they've magically disappeared. So uh, until my new glasses arrive, this is what you're gonna have to deal with. Um, Jen, have you ever visited the Wizarding World of Harry Potter?
0: I have not, not. and now I have no interest in going.
2: Yeah, well, if, if, if you do, uh, leave your glasses at home. That's my only advice. Um, so, uh, you know, Jen, I know, you know prior, to, prior to kind of hit and record here, you know, what, what brought us here today or what had me really interested in having you on this episode was really digging into uh, the nature of diversity in congress and and especially the nature of uh, or the the state of gender equity or gender parity or the lack thereof uh, in Congress. And um, what I'm really interested in 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 understanding is you know what are the root causes? What are the things we can do to help change the equation? Um, but I, I guess maybe just to set the stage for the folks walk, watching, and the folks listening, um, can you give us kind of a baseline of the state of gender equity in Congress? And and also to to follow that up, maybe an understanding as to why this is a problem and why this is something folks should care about.
0: Sure, so a lot of people are probably surprised to learn that about 80% of our elected officials are men. And that's because there are some very, very high-profile women in politics. In Congress, Nancy Pelosi is Speaker of the House. You have Liz Cheney, who has the third highest position among the Republicans. Lots of women now as Democrats chair committees. But the reality is that we always are between, for at least the last several election cycles, um, between 22 and 24% women. And this is... A situation such that Congress is not that different than our other political institutions. At the state legislative level, only about a third of the members are women across the country. In big cities, only about 20% of our mayors are women. The same is true for governors. So the overwhelming majority of our elected officials are men, despite some very high profile women in politics. And The main reason that this is an issue is no longer because women and men are fundamentally different when it comes to how they legislate or what their priorities and policies are. We've reached the point in American politics where whether you're a Democrat or a Republican tells us almost everything we have to know about what you're going to prioritize and how you're going to vote. But there is something to be said about democratic legitimacy and ensuring that our political system is open to all people. And when people look at our elected officials, when they look at our political institutions, when they go to cast a ballot, and so infrequently do they have the opportunity to vote for a woman, that suggests to them that the political system just isn't open. And, you know, we as a nation have worked with other countries to help them Improve representation, and we often suggest that they have quotas, and these are quota levels to which we've certainly never held ourselves. So symbolically, it's really, really important that we up those numbers as well.
2: Yeah, yeah. It was it was funny too because in in the doing some prep for this conversation, um, I came across an article that lauded the fact that uh, the number of women in Congress was at a record high uh, now, and then. Read that that record high was twenty seven percent, which then triggered the prices right losing horns because um, <laughs> that's that's I, I don't think that's something we should necessarily be applauding. Um, you know, one of the things I, I, I found really interesting about the you know the, the the about your work was the fact that it seems that the root cause isn't necessarily that women are disadvantaged at the ballot box. So it it doesn't seem to me that the issue is that people don't want to vote for women. It just seems women aren't running in the same numbers as men.
0: Right. It's a supply problem, not a demand problem. So the good news is that when women run for office, they do just as well as men. They're equally likely to win elections. They raise just as much money. And if we're looking at congressional news coverage, they garner about the same amount and the same type as men. Mm -hmm. And this means is that when a female incumbent seeks re-election, she is almost always re-elected just like a male incumbent. When a female challenger seeks a position, she almost always loses just like a male challenger. And open seat contests, women and men have an equally good shot. And this is true on both sides of the political aisle in primaries and general elections. So the real issue is that there just aren't that many women competing in the first place. And this is not simply because women have decided that politics is something that they don't want to get involved in or that they just don't see themselves as candidates or elected officials. It's in large part that nobody has suggested to them that they run. Nobody has encouraged them to run. But also, they think that there's widespread bias against women in politics. Most Americans do. If you ask people, do you think women win elections at the same rates as men? The majority say no. Do you think women can raise as much money? The majority say no. Do you think they face equitable media coverage. The majority say no. So what happens is women think that they have to be twice as good to get half as far because they'd be navigating this very biased environment. So one of the things that I'm trying to push out with my own research is debunking some of these myths so that women realize that they actually will get a fair shot if they throw their hat into the ring.
2: Yeah. So what I'm hearing from you is it sounds like in a lot of cases, women are talking themselves out of running before they even come to the decision. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, but I just want to emphasize that it's a rational response to what most Americans perceive as an electoral environment that's biased against women. You know, so it's not a situation where women are just saying, no, 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 not me. They're thinking about what it would involve and the obstacles that they'd have to overcome. And in politics, perception matters a lot more than reality. So the perception that you couldn't raise money or that voters won't vote for you, um, you know, drives decisions.
2: Got it. Got it. So it's like so it's it's let's say equal parts bias and logical response to bias is what I'm hearing. Am I correct there?
0: Percep- perception of bias.
2: That kind of bias.
0: I mean, there isn't. There isn't. Now, I will say that when it comes to political recruitment and whether anybody has encouraged you to run for office or suggested that you run, there we do find some gender disparities where women are less likely than men to say that a party leader, an elected official or political activist ever encouraged them to run for office. But they also say that they're less likely to, you know, they're less likely than men to report being encouraged by a family member, colleague or friends. So in that situation, um, you know, they are getting less of that, you know, hey, you should do this which is a way to mitigate against concerns that you're not qualified.
2: Yeah. And that's, that's what I found super interesting as well, was the fact that from what I read of, of your research, it sounds like the the women who do run received encouragement very early on. So it sounds like this is something that starts really at childhood.
0: Yeah. So, and it's, it, it does it being a, Growing up in a political household matters a lot, and it doesn't mean that your parents had to run for office or that they even told you specifically that you should run. But if you grew up in a household where you talked about politics or you engaged in political activities with your family or you even went with your parents to vote when you were young, you've basically grown up amid a set of circumstances that makes you understand how important the political arena is. And probably you've been exposed to more diversity because you've been more engaged so that might send a signal that this is something that you could ultimately do. Now, certainly if your parents encouraged you to run at an early age, that matters in addition to these politicized upbringing factors. Wow. But simply being amid a political household gives you a big boost. And what we found in previous generations was that men were more likely than women to grow up in those kinds of households, to have their parents talk to them about politics. The good news is that Today's high school and college students report no differences. So this gender gap in political ambition remains very, very large, but we seem to have done quite a good job, at least at the high school level and pre-high school level of making sure that boys and girls are growing up in similar political situations. College then becomes the time where we see a big uh, divergence and it, you know, that's, that's the new area that I think we need to address.
2: Got it. Okay. Understood. Understood. You know, Another thing I want to get into here, kind of getting back to something you said earlier, is, you know, the whole issue of bias and then perception of bias. And as you were saying that, you know, I was thinking about the the most recent uh, Democratic uh, primary where uh, there was a big question as to the, you know, electability of Elizabeth Warren. And there were comments that were made about some of the female candidates that I don't think you'd see with a male candidate. Your research indicates that, of course, all of them had an equal chance of winning Ah, uh, you, you know, have an equal chance of winning despite bias. I guess my question is: Do you have any evidence that that the layer below that, so the 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 sort of let's call it pre-candidate level, when there are folks in the party who are being groomed to run or being suggested to run, is there evidence that bias has an influence on the recruitment efforts as well? Is is there evidence that female candidates are maybe recruited at a lower level? Um, despite maybe having equal stature in the party or in the community.
0: Yeah. I mean, so that's what I was just describing. So we have a situation where women are less likely than men, women and men who exist in these same top tier of professional accomplishments. So lawyers, political activists, business leaders, educators, if you look at women and men who on paper look exactly the same, who have the same professional and educational backgrounds, women are substantially less likely than men to report that they've ever been recruited to run for office. Mm-hmm. So what this means is that for some reason, leaders, elected officials, political activists are not tapping women at the same rates that they're tapping men. Now, that could be because they're explicitly biased and sexist, or it could be because they too perceive that women are not as likely as men to be able to raise money, to garner votes, to receive fair media coverage because they're not reading academic studies, right? Like they're. this is based on their own experience. And, you know, they know that they had a candidate who once had to deal with sexism on the campaign trail. So what I really want to emphasize is that I'm not saying, and the work that I've done with Richard Fox um, and also Danny Hayes, we're not saying that there are not instances of discrimination or sexism or bias. There are, and candidates have to navigate them along the way. What we are saying is there's no systematic bias that makes it any less likely for a woman to win an election than a man or not to be able to raise money. And so instances of bias and discrimination are different than systemic patterns.
2: And now this is where I'm gonna, as a, as a middle-aged white dude, um, clumsily enter the, the world of bias uh, and, and the world of navigating bias as best I can. But I, you know, I remember hearing this uh, statistic that, or, or, or this, this one piece of, of research that said that if you put up a job description, uh, women are much less likely than men to apply if they feel that they don't necessarily have the adequate level of experience. So women are just women are less likely to apply for a role um, than men are if they feel like they don't ha- match. They don't sort of cross every T and dot every I. And and if this isn't part of your research, let me know. And you want to pass on this question, that's fine. But I guess you know one thing I'm wondering is do, do you feel or do you have information that would say that um, due to the experience of bias, so whether you're talking about gender bias, racial bias, or whatever, that you are more likely to be extremely careful about where you spend your time and the opportunities you pursue, um, you know, due to experiencing that in life, than maybe somebody like myself who has not suffered under, uh, you know, gender bias or racial bias as well. You know, I'd be more likely to go for that stretch goal because I don't necessarily feel Uh, I don't, I, I haven't necessarily had those headwinds put in my direction. Am am I making something here?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, what I can tell you is that we found, again, we've got thousands of women and men who on paper look exactly the same. We ask them, are you qualified to run for office? And more about 60% of the men say yes. And only about 40% of the women do. Now, if you looked at their resumes, you would identify absolutely no difference. Moreover... Men who don't think they're qualified to run for office still say that they would give it serious thought. So, a woman who says, No, I'm not at all qualified, writes it off. And I think that's because they do have experience navigating male, um, you know, traditionally male dominated environments and do believe that they have to be better to succeed. And as a result, you know, they doubt their qualifications. But what I can tell you in addition to that is we interviewed, beyond conducting national surveys with, you know, these thousands of potential candidates we did intensive interviews with several hundred of them. And what kept coming up when we asked about qualifications were to- totally different definitions. So women would hold themselves up to a hypothetical bar. And when we said, well, what do you think makes a candidate qualified to run for office? They would say a law degree, a business degree, access to the um, access to fundraising networks, policy expertise. They would list like a million things. Yeah. Men would hold themselves, that no one had. They didn't think most male candidates were qualified either.
2: Yeah.
0: Men would say things like, passion, and vision. And they were sort of holding themselves up to the lowest common denominator. We had male potential candidates tell us, for example, that they were qualified because they met their state senator and that person's a moron, right? So women are holding themselves up to something that no candidate could ever achieve. Men are holding themselves up to somebody that really didn't at all impress them. And when you think about it that way, it's no surprise that you're not evaluating the situation similarly. And you know, I and I, I think it's not just politics. We see that in other uh, disciplines as well, and that's consistent with the the studies that you referenced.
2: Oh, I'm I'm laughing because it sounds typically male, right there. So um, <laughs> I, I I represent that
1: demographic at times, so uh, or all the time, for better or for worse. I hope you're enjoying this episode, and I wanted to take a short break to share ways you can learn more about the electoral reform movement that is gaining steam in this country, if the uptick in listeners to YDHTY is any indication. Now, first, as I've mentioned before... Over the past few months, I've been working with an organization called Rank the Vote, and their goal is to bring ranked choice voting to every state in the union. And while there are so many ways we can reform government, ranked choice voting remains, in my opinion, the least drastic, most feasible, and most effective way to get the kind of diversity in American politics we need. And if you'd like to help, you can visit rankthevote.us to learn more. Second... I want to hear from you, so let me know what you think of this episode or others you've listened to, or just give me suggestions on topics and guests by visiting ydhty.com or hitting me up on social media. Twitter seems the place you like to talk, so feel free to grab me there. And to the folks I've chatted with before, you've been a huge help in the growth of the show. Thank you very much for all of your comments and suggestions, and I'd love to get more people in the conversation. Let us get back to the episode.
2: I guess so kind of getting into how we changed things then. like, what are some things we can do? What are some things we should do to start to change that dynamic?
0: Well, the easiest thing is to work on political recruitment. And when I say political recruitment, I don't mean that you have to go out there and find an elected official to then tell a woman that she should run for a specific position. Our studies suggest that if you just talk to a family member, a colleague, a friend, and say, hey, I think you'd be really good at running for office, or I think you'd be a really good candidate for mayor, you should consider running for the school board, that actually matters and triggers their interest in running for office just as much as if an elected official made that suggestion. And so everybody who is concerned about gender parity or gender equity, everybody that thinks it's important to have more women in politics can play a role. The other thing that I would note as really significant is that this gender gap in interest in running for office is not gonna take care of itself. The first study that we did that uncovered a gender gap in political ambition was in 2001. And we found that men were about 16 percentage points more likely than women to say that they would consider running. Fast Forward to 2011, brand new group of people, new generation, several thousand new candidates, the gender gap in political ambition was 16 percentage points. Among high school and college students in 2013, the gender gap was 20 percentage points. And in 2017, after Donald Trump apparently, you know, encouraged so many women to run for office as a way to push back against the Trump administration and what he stood for, we found that the gender gap in political ambition again among thousands of people, 16 percentage points. So this thing is not going to take care of itself because it's so deeply rooted in the psychology of Gender and in the way that women and men think about themselves in society.
2: Yeah, that was and that was something I had I had kind of hone in on. Um, is that you know when I look at other cultures that do better than us in terms of gender equity, Scandinavian cultures are are one that I just happen to know from from doing work over there uh, a while back. You know, they do so much better in terms of gender equity in uh, in the government. But their culture is also one where gender roles are much different uh, than you find in in the United states. And, and and so from from what I'm hearing from you, you know it really sounds like what we're this the the issue of 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 women in politics is is really part of a bigger cultural shift we need to make here in this country as far as what what is the what, what do we consider gender roles? if any? am i am I hearing you correctly or am I totally obvious.
0: Well, I mean, so it's tricky because there is no bias against female candidates when they run.
2: Yeah. And
0: that's even the case if you are a mother with young children, right? So we've reached yeah. the point in time where it's not as simple as, oh, we have certain roles ascribed to women and others ascribed to men. And yeah. as a result, you know, voters aren't willing. I think that what we've gotten to the point now in the United, where we've gotten in the United States now is that we have to be more proactive about encouraging more women to go for it, Yeah. Um, Voters seem to be there. Donors seem to be there. Journalists seem to be there. Now we have to encourage the women that there is this support network that is going to treat them fairly if they throw their hat into the ring, despite the fact that historically gender roles were such that they were not necessarily welcomed into the political arena.
2: Yeah. And that's something I probably should have clarified there too, because, you know, what, what I'm thinking more of is in those beginning phases, like, is there something innate about you know, American culture where I might be less inclined to recommend my daughter run than my son run, for example. That's kind of what I'm getting at, I guess.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's very little evidence that that's still the case, which I think is a really good thing.
2: Um,
0: But what that, but, you know, recommending that your kids run for student government, for example, um, is really, really important. Suggesting that they ultimately run for office later in life is really, really important. But Um, you know, the overwhelming majority of people have no interest in running anyway. So it becomes a little bit tricky because we have to not only encourage everybody to think about running, but once that kernel of potential is there and we could actually translate the interest into a candidacy, we need to make sure that that interest is then fostered. So getting it on somebody's radar screen is the first step. That's really, really important. And then making sure that it stays there. Uh, an additional challenge.
2: Yeah. And the one thing I'd like to comment on, and, and we talked about this before, you know, we hit record, is that diversity, and this goes for gender diversity, racial diversity, what have you, it is a job in and of itself. And, and I think I told you, you know, the thing that brought me to your work was the fact that my, that, and, and, had a bunch of great guests, but had this string of white dudes, and I was trying to figure out why am I only ending up with the same type of person in front of the camera? Um, and so, in in efforts to kind of get a better understanding of this, what I found is that to turn a less diverse environment more diverse is work in and of itself, and it's something that everybody has to take an active part in the process of.
0: To so sort of elaborate a little, you know, there are studies that suggest that. It's not that recruiters are explicitly biased against female candidates. It's not that party leaders and elected officials are biased against recruiting female candidates. It's that they don't think of them because they recruit from their own networks, and their networks are predominantly white men. Mm -hmm. And so if you can call attention to the fact that you've got to go outside of your network, you could still find really, really competitive candidates who could do a good job and win in those districts. That's the first step. And I will say that this is part of the reason that we see such disparities between um, when we compare Democrats to Republicans. The Democrats have decided that given the diversity of the American people and their policy positions, they're really, really going to focus on ensuring that they have a far more diverse slate of candidates every election cycle as compared to the past. Yeah. And as a result, among Democrats, women are about 40 percent of the members of Congress. Mm-hmm. So. The Democrats have decided that this is a job. This is a full-time job for them. The Democratic National Committee has prioritized this. Mm -hmm. Go over to the Republican side. Again, when women run, they're just as likely as men to get elected, but the Republicans have not prioritized diversifying their candidate slate. They haven't ensured that across the country in all um, elections, they're seriously considering this. And I've spoken to party leaders on both sides of the aisle and republican party leaders have said look we're great we think it's terrific if a woman wants to run but to us the most important thing is that the candidate can you know is competitive can win the district and ideally can raise a lot of money and so they're not going to go out of their way to look for a more diverse candidate to do that if a white guy shows up and says hey i want to run in this district yeah. so some of this just comes down to you know where your values are and what you want to prioritize But we see that the situation isn't going to just fix itself when you've got one party that's really, really made an effort and the other party that might not have any sense of bias but is not making that effort. You wind up with, you know, among the Republicans in Congress, you've got to think about 13% women. So, you know, the Democrats are fielding three times as many candidates and as a result, three times as many elected officials who are women.
2: Yeah, and so maybe taking the cynical approach, because I I I don't necessarily want to appeal to folks better angels here, but taking the cynical <laughs> approach, you know, if I'm a Republican Party, uh, if I'm a Repo- if I'm a Republican Party official and I'm seeing these numbers, is there something is there a reason in the electoral math I should be concerned? Because the way I look, I mean, <laughs> all right, please.
0: I would have thought so, but they're able to win elections pursuing the strategy they've pursued. Yeah. Um you know, it's so if you look at the 2020 election, for example, yes, Joe Biden did, Joe Biden's victory was largely due to the gender gap and especially um, women of color in states like Georgia. Like that's why he's president of the United States. And that certainly should suggest to the Republicans that they have a problem. But then the exact same election cycle, they picked up seats in the House and they, you know, they didn't lose the Senate, which was what everybody was anticipating. I mean, it's a tie, so ostensibly they lost, but it wasn't anywhere near the shellacking that was expected. So, you know, it's hard to make the case that they're really suffering by not diversifying, and that becomes tricky. So you have to create incentives for them to do it, even if they can win elections without.
2: Got it, got it, okay. I have one last question for you, Mm -hmm. possibly the most irritating question to ask anybody who's an expert in political science. But I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, you know, this morning, you know, as I was thinking about our conversation, there were two, there were two presidents that came to mind. Um, one was Donald Trump, and the other was Bill Clinton. And the reason I'm using them both is because on this podcast, I always like to make sure that if I'm going to offend somebody, I'm going to offend both parties equally, um, and. The thing that the thing that was in com- that they both had in common is both obviously had their own personal issues when it came to the to the treatment of women and, and how they how they spoke about women or how they acted mm-hmm. around women, um, and both had their own female constituencies who said, "I don't approve of the way they act, but they vote the way I want them to, and that's what matters." Do you feel is that type of philosophy damaging? Do you feel?
0: Well, you know, I started out by saying that at the end of the day, it's all about whether you have a D or an R in front of your name. Yeah. And that's true. This is why primary elections matter, Um, because at the end of the day, if you're a Democrat and the Democrats put up a terrible candidate who is just sort of really, really fundamentally flawed, it's hard to imagine that people are going to vote against that person. Uh, and the same is true of a Republican. It's not only Donald Trump. I mean, Matt Gates, who right now is, you know, sort of experiencing as much of, um, you know, he's he's ensconced in the minutiae of gender-related problems. Yep. If, if, his re-election cam- if his re-election was tomorrow, he would handily win in his yeah. district. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for voters that say, you know, I don't approve of this behavior, but this person votes my values – primaries are the place where you can make that clear. You can vote for an alternative who supports your values and who doesn't necessarily engage in that behavior. The one other thing I would say, as far as the Bill Clinton, Donald Trump situation is concerned, um, at the time when Bill Bill Clinton was elected in 1992, the the scandal was that he was having an affair with Jennifer Flowers. (laughs) Me Too behavior came to light later when he was, Initially, on the ballot, it was sort of about an extramarital affair and whether it was appropriate for Hillary Clinton to stand by her man. We've since have learned that Bill Clinton and Donald Trump have both engaged in behavior that's far worse than just having an affair. Um, but when Donald Trump was on the ballot, the Access Hollywood tape had come out already. Oh, so, you know, I, I think that that demonstrates how much more polarized our politics have become because it's hard to imagine in 1992, when an affair was actually politically relevant and people were considering, is this too much for me to take, that they accepted the Access Hollywood tape. And now it's hard to imagine anything that they won't accept if it's within their own party.
2: Yeah, no, that's a, that's a fair comment. And I even think back to, I think it was four years prior to Bill Clinton, Gary Hart dropped out, dropped of, out
0: of the race for
2: having an affair, which now would not would barely even make headlines. So. Right. Wow, how far we come and how far we fall. fallen.
1: Now, if you like this episode, please share it and leave a review. That is how we get the word out. And if you haven't subscribed yet, just gently tap that subscribe button and welcome aboard. Again, we don't smash any subscribe buttons here. We just tap, tap, tap. This isn't the roller derby. The thing I found most interesting in this conversation was how the lack of women in Congress is due more to the perception sexism will lower their chances of success than sexism itself. As Jen mentioned, women are just as successful as men when it comes to winning elections, but they don't receive nearly the same level of encouragement. And I think seeing more women in office will help other women visualize themselves there, but I also think there's going to have to be some hard work done in the interim to recruit qualified female candidates and get us above the 30% or, dare I say, 40% mark. Oh, yes, I dare. As always, music courtesy of Quellertac. YDHTY's editorial advisor is Added the ad man, the Rear Admiral Adam Yaffe. You finally got a nickname. Yeah! That's the one I'm using, Adam. Hope you like it. YDHTY is produced in North Carolina, United States of America, by the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Adios.